This is the podcast for the journal Genetics and Medicine, published by the Nature Publishing Group. It's the official peer-reviewed journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. I'm Cynthia Graber. As access to genetic testing increases, both in a clinical setting and with direct-to-consumer testing, there's something else perhaps somewhat unexpected that's increasing as well, tests that point to misattributed parentage, usually where the results of genetic testing suggest that the father isn't actually the biological father. Josh Degnan, an associate director of the UCLA Molecular Diagnostics Laboratory, published a study in the journal Genetics and Medicine on how labs currently respond to cases of misattributed parentage. We decided to pursue this study because of a, uh, a case that we had in our laboratory where we encountered exactly this such issue. And so sort of through the process of working through the complexities of this case and the associated misattributed parentage that we actually uncovered, I then sort of went digging for background information and additional documentation about how laboratories and laboratory directors like myself should tackle these issues and actually came up quite empty. And so Dr. Degnan and his colleagues decided to conduct official interviews with nine other labs and include their own lab for a sample of 10. Of these, eight of the labs had dealt with misattributed parentage by the time the paper was published, and one confronted it soon after the discussion occurred. They found that, for the most part, labs deal with the issue on a case-by-case basis. Meaning that whenever they encountered the situation, depending on the clinical history of the case, kind of the nature of the issue, uh, maybe even the clinician involved, they would usually talk to an associated clinician or genetic counselor and talk through the ramifications of the misattributed parentage results, or at least the suspicion of the results, and then figure out together whether they wanted to report it at all or whether they wanted to report it in such a manner as to kind of explain what the laboratory was seeing, but not give the impression of misattributed parentage, or if they wanted to pursue some additional follow-up testing and maybe ask for additional samples from the patient or have at least the genetic counselor follow up and have additional conversations with the individual. And so I think what easily came out of it was the lack of standardization that, you know, of the nine of the laboratories that we talked to, there wasn't one practice across the board that everybody seemed to agree was the best way to approach this. Everybody for the most part, had their own opinions, but very much sort of deferred oftentimes to the clinician involved as to how they wanted to handle this type of result with that specific patient. It was very variable, potentially even more so than I anticipated going into it. For example, a lab might have tested a trio, father, mother, and child. But then, after discovering misattributed parentage, the lab decided to only send along the mother and child's results. Another practice was uh, to essentially just report that the sample with the potential genetic unrelatedness was a QC failure, so that the sample didn't you know, perform appropriately. And yet, really, the sequencing results from that sample that the laboratory received were accurate, and everything about that sample was likely of high quality. That was one way that that we found the labs sort of masked dealing with this discussion. You know, one laboratory would maybe be more open about what they actually saw and, and say that the sample looked like it was not genetically related to the rest of the individuals and then Um, had to provide some type of explanation as to what that might mean. But I think by far common practice was for the laboratories to go back to the ordering clinician or genetic counselor, talk about what they see, and then oftentimes sort of change the number of samples analyzed from three to two, um, and then kind of let the genetic counselor or clinician 
have the conversation with the patient or a family. There definitely was a tendency to not report the information, but there are clinical reasons why that information might be important. Because certainly the scenario in our case, we detected a variant in the child, which was very important to that child's diagnosis, but because we didn't detect it in the maternal sample and it looks like the presumptive paternal sample was unrelated to the child, we didn't actually know whether the variant that we detected in the child was de novo, meaning it had shown up in the child but wasn't present in either of that child's parents, or if it had actually been inherited from the true father whose sample we didn't think we had. And so, you know, whether that presumptive father could then have additional children that carry the same variant has important implications for certainly that individual and potentially, you know, that individual's other children. And there are ethical reasons to report the results as well. One thing I will specify is that our study is focused on the laboratory's practices and not specifically the clinician's practices. So even though, you know, I'm certainly advocating for laboratory report standardization, clinicians could still definitely choose to not disclose this information, even if a laboratory did make some mention of it on a report. But in light of kind of the non-clinical testing world and the fact that these types of results can come about from non-clinical tests, um, I think the practice of non-disclosure by clinicians would be a risky one, simply because I think if I were a patient and a clinician had this type of information and purposefully opted not to tell me, and then I figured it out later, I think I would certainly not be all that happy. And so I I think it's really a question of how paternalistic should laboratories and clinicians be in light of the fact that a lot of information is possible with these clinical genetic tests and, and we can make pretty good inferences about what these results mean. And I think it's just important to have an open and honest conversation with patients who are undergoing this type of testing. That type of open and honest communication usually occurs during the consenting process when patients and families agree to genetic testing. At the moment, consent forms are not standardized. And while most do mention that there is a chance of misattributed parentage, they don't specify how those results will be dealt with if discovered. Dr. Degnan and his colleagues did not come up with specific recommendations, but they suggest that professional organizations such as the American College of Medical Genetics and should take a lead role in this new and potentially growing issue. I think this is a topic that should be undertaken by professional organizations um, just to at least provide some guidance to laboratories and laboratory directors, obviously with the understanding that ultimately how a laboratory and or a clinician chooses to deal with it is likely always going to be up to them on a case-by-case basis. But I think having some guidance for those individuals in light of the current advanced molecular diagnostic applications that we all commonly use these days would be beneficial to the overall community so that other laboratory directors who come across this in the future, when they go looking on the internet for some guidance document, that they actually find something that can be utilized as opposed to not really finding anything and then having to sort of deal with this issue kind of as best they see fit, which has sort of been the practice thus far. Genetics and Medicine is the official peer-reviewed journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics and is published by the Nature Publishing Group. I'm Cynthia Graber.